0: This episode of The Out was recorded on the 18th of May 2021 at home in Wicklow. In it, I get off to a bad start by failing to remember the name of that peculiar musical instrument, the theremin. I've looked it up since, so now I know. The theremin. I then go on to discuss my daughter's introduction to cricket and my own relationship with that game, both as a player and a spectator. Cricket leads me to baseball and a discussion of The Natural, both the 1984 movie and the Bernard Malamud novel upon which it was based. And that's Bernard, not Bernard, as I mispronounced it in the podcast. From there, I am led into a reflection on the sentimentality of that movie, um, contributing to its failure, in my opinion as well as Robert Redford's not-so-great acting. And finally, I discuss resentment as a counterpoint to sentimentality. So there you go. Lots of nice things to look forward to. Finally, I'm going to point out that there is a proliferation of you knows in this episode. And I have decided not to edit them out. As painful as they are for me to hear, my subconscious obviously wanted me to use them, but I'm going to keep an eye on that in the future. Okay, enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. Hi, I'm, the dream, I'm Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How's it going? Anything strange since we were last in touch? How's your life going? How's your little world revolving in the universe? I like that thought sometimes, you know? That that you are your own little entity in outer space traveling alone through the universe on your own little journey seeing sights that only you can see. It's nice, isn't it? Or is it terrifying? I guess outer space, there's something <laughs> rather spooky about being out there in the great blackness. Um, something that uh, Gravity, the film, captured quite well, I thought. Um, Sandra Bullock's kind of isolation. Not to mention both First Man with Ryan Gosling and Ad Astra with Brad Pitt three really strong space movies of recent times um, that tap into the the essentially solitary nature of an astronaut's plight or experience but there you go you know it's a metaphor isn't it it's a metaphor for for all of us all of all of us individuals going through our own life experience with that eerie music in the background. The, um, what's that instrument? Oh, it's just on the tip of my tongue. That space age. <coughs> instrument, oh no, it's gonna escape me. I'll have to come back to that one again. Star Trek, I associated with Star Trek and 60s sci-fi. Ah, oh, I've seen YouTube clips on it and seen demonstrations of it anyway. that one you know the one you know the one um so the latest thing is cricket, not the insect, the sport. My daughter was presented with a little plastic cricket set in primary colours, red stumps, blue bale, green. Bat, yellow ball, and, as I say, plastic, plastic, so uh you know none of these things have the the natural weight and heft and aesthetic and ergonomic pleasure that the um traditional cricket equipment um you know would give you you know the weight um that lovely kind of heaviness of a cricket ball the the lovely wooden bat with the covered handle the wooden stumps and bale or bales if you had to we, we we literally have one you know one set of stumps and you know one bale to go with it anyway she was presented this at the weekend um, and I was trying to go I was trying to explain to her well you know this is how it's played so she was very keen so we've had like three or four sessions either bowling or at bat and <laughs> it's it's been very enjoyable I played years ago years ago as a primary school kid I guess fifth class sixth class so you know 10 11 11 12 that sort of age and I did a couple of summer seasons and I did enjoy it I enjoyed playing immensely um I was intimidated by the you know the, the seniors watching the men play and how fast they could bowl the ball I was like my goodness that's uh there's going to be an injury. Someone's going to get knocked out. Um, but it was. It was a great game to play. And I didn't give it much thought for years. Um, really, yeah, not until I first went to Australia in 2002 with my, my wife, then my girlfriend. I was meeting her family for the first time. And her brother and father, like good Australians, were, you know, cricket fanatics and... It sort of reintroduced me to that world. And then a few years later, the 2005 Ashes series between Australia and England that was in England that year was a just a thrilling um, sporting uh, series over that summer into the autumn, um, hotly contested. Uh, England for the first time in years had a team that could front up and take on the almighty Aussies and they did and they beat them and it was great drama and it seemed to captivate a lot of neutrals um, because I knew quite a few people here in Ireland, um, not traditionally a a cricket stronghold, who who had been watching it and enjoying it immensely and that kind of fired my enthusiasm anew and I've kind of kept in touch with it over the years and it's been nice actually to see Ireland evolve as um you know to to a, to a lesser level a little bit of a cricket force certainly the 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 sport has um seen great kind of growth and an increase in profile um over the last you know 15 years or so and hopefully that will continue and at some point we may have uh, a test team worthy of the name. Um, it's early, early days at the moment, but you only get better by playing the big boys or the big girls, as the case may be. Anyway, my daughter and I were having great, a great time in our garden playing a bit of cricket. She has she has a habit of getting frustrated, I suppose. She's, she's not the greatest um, <laughs> acceptor of defeat. So... Many, many times over the weekend, I had that plastic cricket bat thrown at me if I managed to bowl her out. Um, And, you know, let me just be very quick to jump in and say, I mean, you can't really throw one of those plastic balls very hard or very fast. So really, I was trying to get a bit of, you know, Glenn McGrath type accuracy. Glenn McGrath is a famous Australian bowler of relatively recent years who was known for the precision of his line and length, getting the ball exactly where he wanted it consistently, you know, with metronomic accuracy. Um, So this is what I was aspiring to at the weekend. And, you know, I managed to knock that little bale off those horrible plastic stumps a couple of times. And then I'd have to duck as the green cricket bat came flying through midair at my head. It was either that or else, true to form, um, uh, consistent with my daughter's enjoyment of hitting me. She'd hold on to the bat and just come and try and give me a little old whack in the arse. That's right, the arse. Sort of has a lot more humour in that word, doesn't it? Arse than ass. Ass. Um, Arse is our preferred term here on the Emerald Isle. Um, So yeah. My daughter likes to give me a whack as she's passing by. There you go, Dada. So cricket, that was fun. And I enthusiastically brought her inside yesterday after a session and said, come on, we look at a few clips online. I'll show you what good bowling looks like. And I forced her to look at a little highlight reel of Dale Stain, the South African quick bowler and a devastating spell of bowling he enjoyed um well actually it was against a few different opponents but he just had a particularly fired up and ferocious personality which which is quite common with fast bowlers um they it kind of comes with the territory they they like to present this kind of hyper aggressive in your face combative combativeness um which is a great introduces a great aspect of kind of drama in the you know particularly in, in test series um i also showed her mitchell johnson and and brett lee a couple of aussie quicks (laughs) so she's watching them and just kind of going yeah okay and then just rolling her eyes and going come on let's go out and play and i said "No, no no wait 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 and then i showed her another few minutes of amazing catches uh again a highlight reel just from a year or two ago and featured uh some women's cricket as well so that was nice to so she could see some some of the the girls, the top level female cricketers, you know, diving through the air, one handed catches and are snatching it out of the sky. Um. But again, she was like, nah, let's just play. You know, which is cool. I think uh, getting out there and playing is always better than watching. So a little segue now from one ball and bat game to another. Baseball. Yes, baseball, my favourite game. It's not my favourite game. I don't know anything about baseball. I did see the Detroit Tigers play in 1990 in Detroit, when I I spent a summer in Michigan working on the farm of friends of my parents. Um, And I was taken to see a Detroit Tigers baseball game. My main memory, you know, apart from the general sense of the atmosphere and going, wow, you know, one of the great, you know, American pastimes, you know, witnessing this iconic sport in a great baseball ground, um, you know up high seeing the players down below in the uh, the diamond is it is that what they call it but, but my abiding memory of that day really is uh, I was wearing shorts and my thighs got sunburned that's what I remember the next day going oh my goodness my thighs you know looked like they'd been slathered in pureed crab and they were just bright pink and yeah it wasn't very comfortable so that's, you know, that's that was my only real, that was my only ever uh, experience of seeing baseball live. Um, and apart from that, my main experience of baseball has been through, you know, occasionally, you know, reading sports articles about celebrated baseball players from the States uh, or further afield, you know, maybe places like, you know, Cuba. But it's ma- mainly been through the movies, through American movies and I remember years ago being a huge, huge fan of Kevin Costner when I was a you know teenager, and his kind of you know his kind of emergent career as you know the main one of the main guys in Hollywood, the new leading man so often compared to you know he he was considered a throwback to an older type of Hollywood screen idol a la Gary Cooper it seemed to be the one he was linked to most he kind of had this you know, midwestern, um, accessible, charm and mannerliness and essential kind of decency that came across in so many of his roles. Um, Field of Dreams was uh, a favorite when I was a teenager. His uh, base, one of his, one of several baseball movies he's made. Um, has he done three or four? Bull Durham and For the Love of the Game, and then there's the golfing one, Tin Cup. But anyway, Field of Dreams was really nice. And yeah, basically this guy who builds a baseball diamond field in his field (laughs) and, you know, the ghosts of, you know, the deceased great baseball stars of the past come to play a game and, you know, it becomes a sort of a, a way to reconnect with his father who's deceased, I guess. It's been ages since I've watched it. James Earl Jones is in it as well, I remember. And it's a Timothy Busfield, um, who plays a baddie, if I recall. Very unusual casting for him. But yeah, so, you know, that was my main experience of baseball. And last night I found myself feeling kind of, uh, you know, inspired by a wave of enthusiasm for American sports movies, having recently watched Jerry Maguire. Um, you know, not perfect, but, um, it is, it's a very enjoyable movie, Jerry Maguire. Um, you know, kind of peak Tom Cruise. Great performance by Cuba Gooding Jr. So funny and charming and emotional. Um, and, and just a very, it's a very kind of witty film. Uh, great script by Cameron Crowe. But inspired by that and how much I enjoyed that I thought yeah I'll sit down and watch another kind of classic American sports movie and I decided to watch The Natural the 1984 baseball movie directed by Barry Levinson and starring um you know Robert Redford sort of um not not peak Redford I mean he he would have had his peak really in the in the 70s of course but you know sort of Redford really in this kind of, I just have to turn up and be myself and be, you know, incredibly photogenic and cinematic. And, you know, that sort of star power is going to carry this entire project. Um, and he was, I guess, 48 at the time. And, you know, he looked at, he, he didn't look younger than that. You know, he was in good shape. But anyway, Grant. The and I yeah, I'd seen this I've seen this movie, that was that was probably my third or fourth time to see it. And you know, I I can't remember the last time I watched it. I remember having reservations and thinking, no, there's gonna be there's better movies I could watch, but I, I just kinda of wanted to revisit it and see, okay, is there anything else? Will it will it will it hit a different spot than it has done before? And ultimately you know, my conclusion was no, it didn't really, it didn't. It's a bit of a pudding, uh, not a turkey. It's just you know, it's heavy, it sags, it's you know, it's too long, and you know, for a movie about this amazing baseball player, um, it really isn't at all dynamic, you know, in its in its storytelling. Um you know the baseball sequences are are fine uh I think to see the final sequence of the movie which totally betrays the um the source material, which is Bernard Malamud's novel from nineteen fifty one of the same name, the natural which I read um which I read in nineteen ninety in that summer in Michigan because the 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 people I was staying with the the father. He you know he, he recommended I read it as this kind of exemplar of you know modern American fiction and the sporting psyche and he explained to me then in 1990 how the natural was a you know it was an allegory uh, a Arth- from Arthurian legend and that the natural was basically a you know a retelling of the story of the the Fisher King and the knight Percival, and how the knight Percival missed his opportunity to save the Fisher King and to achieve greatness, because he didn't speak to the Fisher King when he saw him in procession uh, the first time he met him, um, because he felt it would be inappropriate. Uh, He thought it was more becoming of a knight to remain silent. In any case... The character in the movie played by Robert Redford is Roy Hobbs and he goes on this journey of being you know an amazingly talented young baseball player who just when he's about to get his big break um, and be called up to the major leagues he's shot as a young man by a woman who's obsessed with killing the greatest baseball player ever. Um, And he returns to the game much later, uh, 16 years later, and is extremely reticent and reluctant to give any information about his past or about himself, other than to just say, you know, he's loved baseball since he was a kid. And he brings with him his own baseball bat that he made from a tree that was ripped asunder in a lightning storm and from its remnants he carved this beautiful baseball bat which he, into which he carved its name Wonderboy and attached a, a lightning flash to it. And that is his weapon of choice. And of course Wonderboy, again going back to the allegory, Wonderboy is meant to represent uh, Excalibur, the, the sword of King Arthur so again you know here is this heroic cleansing figure um, who when he strikes the ball he brings the rain he brings uh, renewed fertility and growth to the barren land and in this case the barren land is the terrible form the massive losing streak of the team that he eventually joins which is called um, the the Knights or the the New York Knights and again Knights that's Knights with a K Um, again a very clear reference to King Arthur and Camelot and all of that anyway all of that stuff is interesting but the movie really yeah it just it just really lacks a bit of speed (laughs) (laughs) a bit of spark and you know unfortunately I have to say a lot of the problem comes back to Redford he is incredibly I don't know he okay to praise his performance it's very naturalistic he keeps it very small and it you know, that's fine and I you know and I, and I I could see that being effective in a more kind of seventies you know milieu. Um but this movie is set in nineteen thirty nine and it doesn't fit somehow. He you know he he his his unwillingness to to be a little bit bigger or to inform his kind of stillness or his silence with more feeling. Mm-hmm. I think it's 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 this anchor that drags the movie down. He's simply he's simply not that interesting. I mean he's a convincing athlete. Uh and you know he again he looks good. He looks good in the clothes of the era, he looks good in the baseball uh uniforms. Um but yeah, he's it's almost like he's a beat or two beats behind everybody else. It's as if he's walking through the scenes, but not ready. You know, as, as, you know. maybe he hasn't been told, you know, Bob, the camera's rolling. This is it. This is the one. We, you know, we, we're going to take this. Um, it's like he's in kind of warm up mode, always holding something back, which, you know, like, that can work. That can work in a dramatic sense. But here it's like I kind of wanted to reach into the screen and, you know, grab him by the lapels and shake him maybe give him a little slap across the face and go, come on, come on, Robert, wake up, wake up. It, you know, it's happening now. You're here. Um. So there's just this kind of deadness to his performance, which, if you recall his performance in The Great Gatsby, it's kind of similar. You know, maybe maybe he got saddled with this thing. I don't know. I, I, I've often thought about Brad Pitt as well until recent times. You know, for a long time in his early career, when Brad Pitt was given a main role in a movie and had to carry the whole movie. Um he just becomes very, you know, wooden and just loses a lot of the natural charisma he has. Um I'm thinking specifically of a movie like Meet Joe Black. Just didn't work for me. And Redford then, who of course, you know, Brad Pitt was often compared to Redford and in fact Redford sort of cast him as his proxy in um that fly fishing kind of coming of age tale. a river runs through it. But it's a similar thing. Just too much um, I don't know too much too much meat is what I'm thinking. It's like you know here check me out you know this slab of handsomeness but just not enough going on underneath the surface. Such a shame because it's actually it's a great story and it's it's much you know the book is far more interesting because it ends on a very cynical note. You know where he throws a game, and yeah, he, he, and one of his stray balls flies into the crowd, and hits—if not, I can't, can't remember—he if he kills, but hits his 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 childhood sweetheart, who you know has reemerged late in the story to kind of re inspire him. Um, in the movie, played by Glenn Close, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you the legend of the fishy bucket. Many years ago, in the south-west of England, a dedicated band of young actors in training were plying their trade. Bright, shiny and earnest. They had just finished a performance in their own theatre space, for which an audience had paid good money. After the company had taken their bow, one among them stood forth to address the audience. The one chosen to speak was either the prettiest, or the most eloquent, or the most charming. And they held aloft a little plastic bucket, the type of thing a child would take to the beach. It was blue and had red fishies on it. A pretty and beautifully enunciated speech was made about the impoverishment of the arts and the nobility of the acting profession. The audience members were moved and found themselves once again reaching for their wallets until the fishy bucket overflowed with the demonstration of their support. This podcast has no fishy bucket. But if you enjoy what you hear, if it makes you laugh, smile or think, there are two ways to contribute to the show's longevity and success. Wherever you are listening to this, you will find a supporter link and a Patreon link, either of which will allow you to make a donation of your choosing on a one-off or a recurring basis. I thank you for spending your time with me, and if you are in a position to, I thank you even more for spending your money. Fight the good fight. Support art and artists. And now we return you to The Clear Out. But yeah, strange. A strange movie and yeah, disappointing stuff. Disappointing stuff. Um, just doesn't quite take flight the way you'd, you'd hope it might, you know? The one thing I will say is Redford does, he does look good. And the opening shot, actually, it's probably my favorite shot of the movie. The opening shot is of Redford sitting on a bench on a train platform, waiting for his train to take him to the city. And he's kind of slouched, you know, slouched on his, on the bench, um, head down with his... um you know his hat a trilby hat or a fedora or whatever sitting over his head and it's just you know you take that as a still and it's just like a, an Edward Hopper painting these kind of muted colours but it's very it's a very kind of iconic um, you know 1930s image or you know early 1940s they're heading for that kind of mid 20th century look um, sharp lines on the clothes Really, yeah, just a great, great look. But apart from that, you know, my other conclusion was that ultimately, the movie was little more than sentiment. And I've heard, uh, you know, American critics, you know, wax lyrical about the natural and sports fans. And, you know, there's something that can happen um, when you have sacred cows put up on screen, where people kind of lose their lose their ability to really be a bit more discerning, and I think for a lot of people, the you know the natural falls into that category, and um, you know the American love affair with baseball um, means that for some for some critics who may also be baseball fans, they just lose that critical faculty to just step back and go well do you know what this actually isn't that good even though it's about this sport that I love and there are some great kind of sequences in the movie that really you know point up the you know the romantic drama of sport I mean that's what you know, we, you know anyone who likes sport it's a, you know one of the main attractions of watching a sports movie but the natural as I say ultimately um, it just felt sentimental and It kind of got me asking the question, like, what is sentiment? Like, what does that mean if you say something is sentimental and why is it not satisfying? And ultimately, my conclusion was that you know, this idea of like sentimentality or sentiment, it's it's feeling it's the kind of it's the presentation of feeling it's the presentation of emotion and it's the presentation of kind of an emotional payoff that's meant to satisfy us but none of the hard work has been done to earn that payoff so it's a sort of a it's a shorthand uh, of you know of, of an emotional kind of apex and yeah are are a lazy a lazy kind of shortcut to, you know, the kind of the climactic moment that we're all meant to go, oh, that was so powerful. And if it's merely sentiment, it's not earned. I mean, that's the thing. It's just, it's not earned. And you haven't been on the journey. But, you know, it's like, it's like the You know, in this case with the movie, it's like a you know a box of tissues is being proffered from the screen, um, you know, or somebody is standing beside you, bathing you in, you know, magic hour light to make you go, oh yeah, wow, this is amazing. Oh, I'm so moved. Oh, so so touching. Oh, it's it's just it's just got me, and it just hasn't. It's you know it's empty, and. Yeah, it's just it's 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 not satisfying on any level. Um and yeah, I, I, I for some reason I'm thinking of uh the Michael Bay horror show um Pearl Harbor, which kind of did something similar, I feel very you know, kind of style it's not exactly style over substance, because sometimes style over substance you know, there's actually other things going on. You know, the, the, the visual aesthetic can be sufficiently diverting that you don't really mind. And, you know, there can be a momentum to style over substance as well, where, you know, it's all jazz hands. Uh, but you're happy to be distracted. You're happy to go on that journey. So you don't really care. And maybe Pearl Harbor had a bit more of that going on. Um, you know, the, the the non-combat scenes to me always looked like a, you know, a milk tray commercial, Um, yeah, anyway, not very satisfying, but to reiterate the idea of sentiment as being the end product or the byproduct of laziness, that is really my position here, or that's my conclusion that, you know, sentiment is, you know, what happens when the creator of the art just couldn't find a more successful way to tell the story and focused on you know the the end point rather than the journey um, and so it's it, it just feels like a, a cheap trick and it can be presented in a very pretty way um, but it's just not satisfying at all so I was thinking about this I was thinking about the idea of you know sentiment sentimentality uh, being sentimental and I was trying to think you know what's what's the opposite and (laughs) I I started to think about relationships and you know one of the most difficult things in a relationship is to keep um, resentment at bay um you know to, to <laughs> the, the challenge I think in any long term relationship um and, and this is not this this doesn't just necessarily pertain to you know romantic relationship uh, romantic relationships are marriages um it could be family relationships it could be friendships as well but yeah I started to think about resentment as being the opposite of sentimentality um now bear with me that might not make sense straight away but the way i was thinking was if you know if to sentimentalize something and like so to, to if if we move away from the world of art of, of of movies like the natural and move into the real world and sentimentalizing our memories you know being you know nostalgic and rose tinted about the past that is i don't know if uh, i don't know if that is human nature or if it's just something that some people do you know i i like to value um <laughs> i like to value past experiences i'm not afraid to revisit the past um per, you know particularly if it's something you know pleasant favorable um a reminder um of you know something that can still sustain me or evoke certain feelings but i don't see any value in sentimentalizing that um you know making everything just too wet and maudlin and syrupy um i don't know i don't know i I don't know what value there is in doing that you know it's um that stuff belongs in the past i mean that's that, that's where it lives um and it shouldn't it shouldn't live in the present it doesn't have value you know the the challenge is to create new v- memories and new experiences of worth now in the present um so then the so if the sentiment, if sentimentality then in that sense is being excessively um you know romantic and nostalgic um you know about the past Uh, and, you know, eradicating all nuance uh, and edginess, you know, getting rid of all the the rough edges and making everything kind of soft, focused and perfect, Um, then I think resentment can lead to the opposite, where, you know, the, the lens through which you view your relationship or the lens through which you view the person with whom you're involved, um, that lens becomes increasingly uh, jaundiced and bitter and fragmented. And all you can see are, you know, the roots of unhappiness and, you know, the roots of personal injustice. And this is treacherous stuff. This is dangerous terrain. And the, the, I think that the, the challenge is, you know, you've got to purge, you know, in, in, as, in as healthy a way as possible. Uh, the, the challenge is to purge those resentments in a timely fashion. Because, you know, the, the, the resentment bucket that, you know, fills up and overflows that is a terrible contaminant uh you know in a relationship and really you know ruins all chance for you know a successful and honest exchange um you know it it just ruins it, it ruins all chance for kind of ease and trust within a relationship when you're too busy focused on You know what has happened and what you felt and you know and every which way the 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 other person is responsible um it it's no good it's just no good and i'm going to make this link to my earlier definition of sentimentality being the product of laziness um you know uh, of being a, a cheap trick um i sometimes you know i i, I not sometimes right now I'm, I'm saying i think resentment is also connected to laziness the laziness of you know laziness i, I mean I'm, I'm going to attach this laziness to to fear you know fear of doing the hard work of exploring you know an issue a problem the fear of airing um, an uncomfortable thought or an uncomfortable feeling, the the fear of revisiting um you know an unpleasant memory um or revisiting an insult or a slight or a wound um because that will make you vulnerable and you know the, the fear of course when you're vulnerable is the fear that the fear that comes with that is you know, the fear of being hurt even more um, because you've, you've kind of opened yourself up. You've shown this kind of area of weakness or this area of anxiety or concern or, you know, emotion that you can't quite control. Uh, and so when we bottle all of that up and don't express it, I think its most common form is resentment and, you know, resentment is it's often an unexpressed feeling, isn't it? It's its, it's this kind of unexpressed anger, this unexpressed feeling of being wronged um, or, you know, a feeling, you know, in a relationship sense of feeling misunderstood or un, unappreciated. And the the unfortunate thing is, if we if we don't express it, if we don't actually come out and go, this is why I'm angry or this is why I'm hurt or this is how I felt when you said this or did that, the resentment it really you know it, it uh it just seems to colour everything and you're no longer capable of a clean a clean exchange, a clean line. Um, this is something I've mentioned before. You know the idea of clean lines. So I I value them very highly <laughs> in in all my relationships. You know, I I crave that kind of clarity of under understanding and communication. And, um, yeah, I, I you know I continue to prioritize that as as much as I'm as as much as I'm able. I I trust it. I trust that it works for me. You know, that's that's all I can say. I trust that it works for me. Um, I don't like spending a lot of time, you know, second guessing and wondering and agonizing over, you know, any kind of areas of conflict with the people I I care about. Um, And of course, you know, my wife is number one in this area. I mean, we're married. um, We had our 18th wedding anniversary recently. We've been together for 20 years and. You know there have been challenges there's no question there's no question there have been challenges, and you know we 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 sought help <laughs> we sought the help of a professional to help us kind of renegotiate how we kind of found dialogue with each other you know um and it helped it helped enormously and you know you know resentments do build up and hurts build up and what I understand about relationships now more than ever is. You know, one of the other hardest things, you know, about relationships is to try and stay in sync with your partner. And I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, maybe there's different ways to define that. I mean, maybe there's a baseline synchronicity that never goes away like that natural compatibility that was there from the start. But there's something about the timing of our, you know, our individual growth and our individual development you know, how we grow as people that it's almost impossible to be tethered in perfect synchronicity um, with another person, no matter how much you love them. Um, and those, you know, those um, different rates of, yeah, growth, I suppose, different rates of growth, understanding, um, just that different individual life journey Um when you suddenly find yourself very much on a different path you know you, you know and, and and this is probably very internalized it's it's very much the interior life you know what you're processing intellectually emotionally you know psychologically uh, and it may tether to you know your behavior externally but i don't know i i, I the way i kind of conceive it i think it's very it's very internal And it's really hard to, you know, to really be in the same place over an extended period of time with someone um, that you're close to. I mean, I think disconnect is inevitable and somewhat unavoidable, but you can try and develop a sense of, you know, you can try and develop a sensitivity to that and then, you know, an increased awareness which allows you to react, um, you know, to react optimally or, you know, react with, you know, some kind of um, informed and, you know, proactive uh, kind of weaponry, um, you know, to, to make sure things don't deteriorate too much. And, you know, that's all, you know, that's all a long-winded way of coming back to the idea that, you know, the, the echo of sentimentality in resentment is, is laziness. It's a, it's a shorthand. It's, it's an abdication of doing, of doing the hard work. And yeah, I think, um, I don't know, think on that. (laughs) Think on that, listener. Um, Because I found myself now in my kind of late 40s, uh, similar, almost, almost the same age as Robert Redford in *The Natural*, <laughs> or the same age as he was when he, he when he made that movie. Um, heading heading for forty eight. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a middle age thing, but resentment. No thanks. Try to avoid. Try and bleed it out of your system as quickly as possible. Try and put it into context. And here, think and think about this. This I'll give you, give you this. You know, the last word. You know, you might be feeling all those things. You might be feeling all these feelings of hurt, all these feelings of anger, all these feelings of, you know, whatever. But, you know, the person that you're focusing on, you know, the the, the object of your, your resentment, you know, the fact that you've already decided that they don't appreciate you or they're not, you know, they don't understand. That should tell you straight away, you know, that that is literally the case. They are not, they don't live inside your body. They don't live inside your emotions. They don't live inside your head. So unless you find a way to communicate effectively to the other person and accept that you may be having a similar impact on them and that you don't live inside their head, their heart, uh, you know, if you can't kind of get to that point, um, you know, you're in trouble. So, you know, you know, embrace the idea that it's not just you. You're not the only one um, capable of being hurt. You're not the only one capable of feeling those negative feelings. Um, and give the other person the benefit of the doubt, and try and enter into dialogue. You know, w- w- with that uh, very much at the forefront of your of your thoughts. Um, because you're more likely to get a, a positive response. And that's, that's really the goal, isn't it? <laughs> Is that the goal in the relationship? In our relationship, you want a positive response. Like otherwise, why are you spending time with that person? Unless you're a masochist or unless you have some serious issues, Um, which, you know, it's possible. It's possible. And, 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 and I'm not here to invalidate that. Yeah, you'll have to work that one out for yourself. Uh, okay, so there you go. We've uh, we've come a long way from cricket. The journey from cricket to resentment in forty-five minutes. Okay, that's it. Take care. Thanks so much for listening, and I will talk to you again. All the best. Mind yourselves. Take care. Bye.